я все Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. We're back after a break last month and just in time for a lot of interesting developments taking place in Ukraine. And who better to discuss them all than the legendary military analysts of this war, my friends Mike Kaufman and Rob Lee. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us back. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, let's start with you. So we have a lot of things taking place. The Some unnamed U.S. officials are saying that what we're seeing now in the South is the start of this long-awaited counteroffensive in Ukraine. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of activity also in Bakhmut and uh, Svatova Krimina area in the north. What, what's your take on the situation? What are we seeing? Give us, give us your sense of the current developments. Sure. So I think it's fair to say that the Ukrainian offensive began a few days ago and we're in the early phases of it. I think that we are beyond what people were calling shaping operations beforehand, and I don't think that these are sort of reconnaissance and force or just probing attacks. I think that there have been a series of Ukrainian operations between Bulgodar and Vyika Novosilka that are brigade-level actions on that part of the front. It's not quite clear what's happening in Zaporizhia, but there have been indications that there's a lot more fighting and much more sort of intensified activity along the front line there as well. And then separately, there's been an ongoing Ukrainian counterattack around Bakhmut. You know, you've been probably tracking that the last couple of weeks. This has been primarily by 3rd Assault Brigade and a couple other units based there. And more recently, a fairly active push by Ukrainian forces around Solodar, although I'm not sure how much progress they've been able to make. Uh, I, I don't think necessarily the sort of counterattack at Bakhmut has a strong tie-in into the the uh, offensive plan or or the plan for the summer, but Bakhmut remains important to Ukraine. It's very it's very clearly from my point of view. Uh, that being said, the forces were seen... and, and you think it's important politically or it's important uh, strategically? Yeah, I think it's important politically. I don't think it's that important strategically, but they very much want it back. We've discussed it before that the battle's taken on a a, a significant value in terms of. Um, it's the new Stalingrad, right? Uh, well, it's sort of a symbol. You know, there's a sunk cost rationale that sort of uh, that 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 comes into play over time, and and how important Bakhmut in of its in of itself is. Sort of the town, I think, is less significant now rather than the the how it figures into a contest of rules between Russia and Ukraine. But that being said, I think if you look at the force engaged thus far. Right, you're not seeing any of the brigades or the main units you would expect to see in the offensive that were trained and equipped by the West, which gives you a good sense that we're probably that we're not seeing the main effort yet, or not necessarily the main axis of attack. Right, I don't want to speculate too much. Even though we have seen some reports that maybe leopards are finally showing up, you don't think that that's real? Uh, no, I, I do not believe that's the case. I think that I think that uh, that Russian noblogger is confused. Uh, French AMX 10 RCs that were provided to Ukrainian naval infantry brigades for Leopard 2s, and those are very much not the same thing. Rob is welcome to chime in on it, but that's my impression of what might have happened. Some people joke that they can that they showed some videos and confused tractors for Leopard 2s. There's been some memes making fun of them. Rob, one of the surprises here, and and certainly we're not yet seeing kind of the main thrust of the action, but you're seeing the force being spread across a huge front line. Certainly in the south, and you know, as Mike mentioned, you're still having a lot of activity in Bakhmut and in the north as well. 
is is that surprising to you that the Ukrainians are not trying to concentrate all of their fairly limited forces, right? There were reports that maybe about 12 brigades were going to be used in this counteroffensives in one specific spot to try to get a breakthrough, but they're spreading it across this huge front line. No, I don't, I don't think it's that surprising. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, my expectation, I think probably most people's expectation is that, that Ukraine would try to probe in multiple areas. Um, if they found vulnerable points, they would then potentially commit additional resources to try and, you know, if they achieve a tactical breakthrough, now we throw in a main effort to try and, you know, make this into an operational strategic level kind of breakthrough. But obviously, we, you know, we saw some tactical gains from Ukraine um, west of Uldor the other day. You know, it, it's not clear if that will lead to something more than that, right? I mean, it was initial gains. Clearly, Ukraine took some losses in doing so. I actually, I, I disagree with Mike. I do think um, Ukraine has, is using some of the new brigades um, with some of these defensives, but, you know, they've got like nine or so. So we're not seeing the main effort yet, I'd say. And some of the brigades are the 47th, the one with the Bradleys, but I don't think we've seen indication that it's being used yet. Um, so some of the new brigades are being used, but, you know, it's not fully clear, you know, where the main effort will be. And I think a lot of part comes back to, okay, we're seeing probing or, or you know, certain some of these kind of uh, tactical kind of offensives and, you know, west of Ulador, it sounds as though something's happening in Zaporizhia today. The Russians are are talking about something haven't haven't really gotten to, to to figure that out. So a lot of these main the, the main effort of the kind of offensive will likely be committed wherever Ukraine thinks is the best chance for success. And of course, you know, by probing or or doing assaults in multiple directions, you force Russia to kind of um to 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 not be able to concentrate in one area, but try to be able to defend in multiple places. And then so you know, Bakhmut, you know, I think all the Ukrainian units that are being used are existing units. So I, I don't think they've committed any new brigades there. Um, and so th- there is some, heavy fighting going on. There's some of the, some fighting going south of Bakhmut. There's, there's some heavy fighting going north of Bakhmut. Um, you know, Ukraine made some gains. It looked like tactical gains. I, I don't think it's a place where Ukraine can achieve like, operational type gains. So I think, you know, we e- put even in- though you, even though the big development in Bakhmut is that Wagner has now left and they were, probably some of the best fighting forces that the Ukrainians have encountered recently. And it's not clear that the regular army units are replacing them have the morale and the capability to withstand a concentrated assault, right? So it does seem to me like Ukraine has an opportunity to uh, make some gains here. Do you agree? Yeah, so, you know, I think, so I think, again, it's, it's important to look at this holistically, right? So Russia has weak units, and they're going to be somewhere on the front lines. And so there's always going to be a vulnerable area. And one of the things that with Bakhmut, Bakhmut was unique for a couple of reasons. One was you had this really unity of commands issue between Wagner and Russian multi-units. And those those uh, problems and fissures between not just Prigozhin and Gerasim, but also at lower levels, right? There there were there were issues there. And it seemed as though the Russian military, the VDV was doing a lot of the fighting early on supporting Wagner. But VDV is the end, Russian airborne. Right, more elite units like you know, so some, so it kind of gives an indication Russian military was, was trying to help and actually play an important role. But later on, right when when um, Ukraine made some gains about two weeks ago, counterattacking, they were counterattacking very attrited Russian units. And it seemed that the Russian military kind of sent maybe deliberately some of the weaker units to be there because who's going to get blamed if Bakhmut goes poorly? Maybe it's Wagner, right? Maybe not. If if they do, if Ukraine uses a breakthrough in Zaporizhia, right, it's, it's going to be the Russian military, right? So. There's always that kind of issue there, um, but Russia did move more VDV units there to Bakhmut as at towards the end of the battle. Um, it seems as though there are actually indications that some of the Russian motorized rifle units are being put under VDV commands in some of the areas. So um, it seems as though with Bakhmut, 
Russia cares about it too. And, and Mike's right about you know political importance. Both sides care. Russia does not want to lose Bakhmut because it, it would be seen as an embarrassing thing. Um, and so they you know they're committing a lot of resources too. There's a lot of artillery there. Uh, Ukraine was they haven't made some gains, but it seems as though Ukraine has taken some losses there too. Um, obviously, it's early days, right? So it's you know it's hard to make any kind of long-term conclusive judgments, particularly but until we see kind of the main effort of the Ukrainian assault being committed. Um, but you know it's it, it's it, it's a little early to say, but I don't think Bakhmut is where you know Ukraine is going to win this war or where the counteroffensive like the, the main effort is going to be. And so you know I think that's why we're seeing existing Ukrainian units doing the fighting, but not these new brigades. And of course, an issue is these existing units, right? They, they've been fighting on the front line for months. And so they don't have the same um, number of soldiers. They don't have the time to train new equipment, which means, you know, they're, they're going to be able to achieve maybe tactical gains, but probably not much more than that. And if they take losses, they'll hit a culminating point sooner than other units would too. And so I think that's kind of the context where we keep in mind when we talk about what's going on in Bakhmut right now. So my theory on Bakhmut is that Prigozhin is actually trying to set up a, a trap for Shoigu and Gerasimov here because here he takes victory, dance with you know conquering the city after enormous efforts over a nine-month period, and instantaneously, within a week, withdraws and turns it over to the Russian military, which probably has no time to actually set up good defensive lines. And my theory is that he wouldn't actually mind if Shoigu loses Bakhmut because he will get all the blame and Prigozhin looks like a hero, the only one that can actually achieve victories on the battlefield while the Russian military is losing. Mike, what, what do you think of that theory? Look, I, I'm not that, that sure that there's a, there's a lot of complexity here. My basic sense of it was that um, Wagner's forces were principally used in assault. They've not been used in defense throughout this war. I think that when we talk about the kind of troops they have, they're ultimately a mixed corps. A lot of us dismounted infantry, okay? They are principally used in assault roles. They are not that effective in defending areas. So they're going to leave and redeploy anyway. I think the big issue was going to be first, during the seizure of Bakhmut, Prigozhin clearly felt he was being sabotaged by Shoigu and the Ministry of Defense, right? And they were being set up to fail. And also probably worried, this is my own supposition, that as they got close to taking Bakhmut, the regular Russian military would show up and then try to get the rest of the city and claim victory and basically pull the rug out from under them the way they attempted to do at Solodar and then take pictures of themselves in Bakhmut and say, it's the Russian airborne that took Bakhmut, not Wagner. And Wagner had been fighting for this thing since August, right? So I can imagine, I think that's what led to all those ultimatums and theatrics in May, if you remember, and, and the, uh, the notice he published that Wagner is leaving Bakhmut as though Wagner has the ability to just quit the field whenever they feel like it, you know? Um, and then after that, I do think that Wagner was badly attrition and needed to reconstitute. I think the irony of what's happening about Hoot right now is that Wagner forces weren't going to be relevant to defense, to defend Russian lines, either in Zaporizhia or in southern Donetsk or in Lohansk along the Svatvar Kremlin line. With them having taken Bakhmut and now withdrawing, it actually does tie up some Russian forces to have to defend that area, and they had to pull those forces from somewhere else. The 31st Airborne had to get yanked from somewhere. A couple other brigades had to get pulled from the south. So the, the irony of the Battle of Bakhmut is now that Bakhmut, the city, was lost, it actually is tying up Russian forces. And we've discovered something that you know I think some of us had known for a while. Bakhmut's not a very easy place to defend. Geographically, it's not that well situated as a place you want to defend. And Russian forces are, are discovering that. And, and we were writing that quite 
uh, for quite a while about the challenge of the Ukrainian defense there. Um, the only other thing I wanted to add, sort of, while while, while you're d- discussing the the Bakhmut, is that I think I think it's clear that a lot of the Russian units that had been deployed there are definitely weakest. I agree with Rob because it's because it's understood that the main thrust of the Ukrainian offensive is likely to come elsewhere, or at least it's going to be decisive elsewhere. And even though the Russian military doesn't want to lose Bakhmut, it's going to have to make choices about where the line is going to be thin and where the forces are going to be weak or lower quality relative to the, the parts of, of occupied territory they intend to defend. And, and this is clearly part of the Ukrainian strategy on a number of fronts to try to dissipate the Russian forces, right? That's probably the reason for these incursions, supposedly by, you know, Russian uh, opposition into Belgorod Oblast um, and trying to not just embarrass the Russians, but bring some... Russian MOD forces there too to try to defend these border regions. Although I'm I'm not quite clear why they have to use the MOD and why the interior forces and Rosguardia are not part of that defense, given that they also have significant military capabilities. Rob, do you have any any thoughts on that? No, um, I mean, so I think you know you, Ukraine's kind of Operation Bulgur was a smart economy of force mission, whereas it was a smart place to kind of use. Limited resources to, to achieve kind of outsized effects. Um, clearly, the, on the IO side, right, you know, huge success in terms of kind of, um, you know, Propaganda creating political victory. issues. Yeah, propaganda victory, uh, important kind of um, uh, showing kind of weaknesses that Russia has, creating kind of domestic issues in Russia, you know, potentially a morale problem in Russia as well. The question was always going to be strategically, what is this going to lead to, right? And so a lot of, Ukraine's done a lot of kind of uh, high-profile operations behind Russian lines, um, some of them, I think, should agree are quite important, but other ones, it's not always clear how it ties in completely. In this case, really, I think the most important role of what, what it was, what's going on is how much Russia might, you know, pull forces away from Ukraine to help kind of defend the border. I'm not sure how much they've done. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. It seems as though most of the responses from kind of, you know, conscript units that are, that are not allowed to be deployed or from, you know, FSB or Ruskwardia units. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it, it clearly shows a weakness uh, on the Russian side to, to defend the border. You know, the, the, the thing that we talk about, though, is that there's always this expectation about, you know, at what point will Russians kind of say, OK, enough, this is too much. We we now want you know to force it into this war. And, you know, I, I just don't know if that's ever going to happen. Right. We keep seeing all these kind of things and Russians enduring all these t- you know, things like mobilization, all these terrible anecdotes, the economy suffering. And to even though, right, the situation in Bulgaria got bad for civilians there it might affect their economy and and kind of you know makes obviously the Russian government look weak. You know, will that lead to any significant domestic problem for Putin? I, I, you know, probably not. Uh, maybe it will, but you know, it, it's not clear at this point. So, I, I think that the the most strictly important aspect of that is is whether or not it, it can divert Russian forces from elsewhere on the front lines. Um, but either way, you know, there's a small Ukrainian force. You know, obviously with with some uh, uh, Russian nationals to support. And in that regard, you know, I, I think it was probably probably effective. But I think also we we may have elevated its importance a bit more than it is. Because ultimately, you know, the, the war is going to be won in Ukraine. And it's going to be won based on whether or not Ukraine can, you know, achieve a, a real breakdown and smash the Russian defenses, exploit it really quickly. And, you know, Belgrade maybe plays a kind of supporting role of that. But, but um, you know, the, the main effort is going to be happening in Ukraine. Well, the, the one thing it has accomplished is it brought General Lappin as the new company commander taking on defense of Belgorod and away from, from the Ukrainian front. Mike, what was your take on that? Well, you probably saw online, I was joking along with Jack Watling and others, 
that, you know, if uh, Lopin is going to be downgraded to section commander or what looked like at most a platoon with an infantry fighting vehicle, then Gerasimov should have showed up too and been the company commander of that effort. Yeah, um, it's it, it's fascinating to see these uh, commanders who have demonstrably failed or performed very poorly being recycled and try to take on these PR uh, style roles. That was my take on it. But look, my overall sense of it is that this raid, despite being theatrical and generating a lot of PR, and there's clearly a strong information operation behind it, haven't I haven't seen a substantial shift of Russian forces to try to defend those areas. But it's clear what they're meant to do, right? They're part of setting the conditions to try to enable a Ukraine offensive operation and stretch out Russian forces as best as they can accomplish that. Understanding that if the thrust of the Ukrainian offensive in the South, where there are multiple Russian defensive lines, and that's something folks need to appreciate, whatever they're reading right now about where the defense was going, as well as expected, better than expected, worse than expected, this is an operation that's going to play out over the course of weeks and months, right? You, you're going to expect Ukrainian forces to push the, the initial Russian line, the first line. I am quite... And it co- seems like they haven't yet reached, reached it, right? From the maps... It looks like they're not yet at the first line of fortifications that the Russians have in terms of their trenches that they've built. Well, it's I'll blow this way. It's unclear. The evidence is always lagging. So you see even me and Rob going back and forth on which units are in play because it depends which one of us spent what time yesterday looking at it. The evidence is lagging. Maybe I spent more time looking at the dam and when the result of the dam. But, you know, we, we're trying to catch up and we're only a couple of days into this operation. Of course, U.S. officials will already be out in Washington Post explaining how the offensive is going better than expected or what have you and and they'll be making geographic comments to suggest they might not even see where the main thrust of it is just my own kind of critique of what i've read already um my basic sense of it is that just to be clear i i have over the last two months become more optimistic about the ukrainian prospects because of the timing of the offensive because that they waited longer both to get the equipment get the training wait for the weather to improve and the Russian military looks off in a bad way. So if you if you remember our conversations from March or maybe February, I'm definitely more optimistic than I was back then looking at where we are now. That said, I do believe this is going to play out over the course of the summer. And as always, as during the Kersona Fence, I was trying to encourage folks to be patient and not to, you know, basically not to expect Guderian style attacks and 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 what have you. And and then from the objective itself, there's a lot of people speculating that they're trying to get to Berdansk. Do you think that's clear yet? I mean, obviously they're trying to sever the land bridge, but it could be severed in a few areas. Um, do you have a sense for what the ultimate objective is, or are they simply trying to figure out where the weakest lines are and then exploit that uh, opportunistically? All right. I'll, I'll be honest. If you're looking at the South, there's probably at least three axes of attack that you can see there. All right. I think that uh, Ukrainian military is probably going to see where they have success, break through, and reinforce that success. They have the advantage of interior lines of communication. They can ship forces quickly. They do not need to commit to a singular axis, right? And and so they can have then one of the efforts be the fixing attack. Whatever efforts are successful will be the main effort. Um, the land bridge is kind of, I think, a notional objective. I mean, I want to be clear that there's probably not that much material that flows east to west through that part of Ukraine. Right. A lot of people. Really, even though the Kerch Bridge is still impacted and resupply to Crimea is challenging. Um, I think that's quite a few supplies flowing through Crimea. So it's important to understand the Russian forces in the south in Kherson, right, and Zaporizhia are principally supplied via Crimea. And then the other Russian forces are supplied from Rostov on Don, 
and there's actually not that much material flowing through the middle. So, so the notion of it being a, a land bridge, I would say, is a kind of geographical notion, probably much more than, than the, the correct practical interpretation of what severing would do. But, but hold on, Mike. Let, let me just challenge that because the rail link is still down. It might get restored over the Kirch Bridge maybe this right, month. Right. The rail link's not down. Only one of the railways was down. Uh, they're not sending, my understanding is they're not sending heavy trains through that link. Yeah. You, you, you've seen that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. They can, okay. they can, they're shipping plenty of equipment across that rail link. And remember, Crimea has also always been connected by a ferry service, too. A lot of times they just have to remind folks that there was this time after Russia annexed Crimea, but before it built the bridge, during which it supplied all its forces in Crimea and the peninsula. And we have kind of memory hold this time period as to how that happened. Right. But but they were also fighting a major armed conflict with Ukraine at the time, so the supplies needed were, were much less. What What's your take on the objectives, Rob? Uh, I mean, I think Mike's right. Um you know, ultimately, I think, you know, the, the ideally, they'd achieve success in the south, right, in the Zaporizhia direction or south of the region, you know, getting to the Sea of Azov. Um, you know, I think ultimately it's going to be, you know, they, they, they see where they can make success and they exploit it. And so they, a lot of it comes down to basically where Russia is defending and, and where Russia is vulnerable. And it makes sense to kind of press where they're vulnerable and just, you know, take what you can get um, and try and create problems for the, for the um, for Russia. Um, you know, ultimately, I think the offensive... Um, they obviously want to take better terrain. Part of it, too, is about how does this offensive set the Ukraine up to be in a better position to fight the rest of the war and to put Russia in a worse position, right? And so, you know, cutting the land bridge, right, that might be one facet. But obviously, as Mike said, it's, it's not only all the supplies go through there. But if, you, if, they make, if they make gains to the south, that might put more of Crimea within range of different Ukrainian weapons, which, you know, might give them a better opportunity kind of long term to kind of affect change there. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, Obviously, a big part of this is foreign perception, and because Ukraine is extremely reliant on foreign foreign, foreign equipment, they have to be cognizant of of setting expectations and, and, and kind of demonstrating success uh, for audiences to make sure they can continue to kind of uh, get that kind of support to show they can re- still retake things. Um, no, like you know, ultimately a big part of this is just showing that this is not a stalemate and that they, that they can achieve more uh, gains if they get the right equipment to do so. Um, and you know, as we talked about before. You know, they've gotten some new equipment. Storm Shadow is a new development, right? There's there's likely some other systems that they, they've received that we don't know about that they'll kind of use as offensive. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to them, them demonstrating they can continue to succeed and that if they get their equipped properly, that they can continue to make more gains um, and it's not a stalemate. So what do you, Mike, what do you think, how would you define success of this offensive? Let's start there. Uh, that's, a, that's a question. So I think, Unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the definition is probably going to be political and subjective, right? Because I often say military strategy is political in nature. It's meant to tie operations to political objectives. So to me, the way I would define success is first that uh the the operation has to liberate a significant tract of territory. That means it has to go far beyond what we've seen in the fighting of the last six months. And how much it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter, right? We don't Ukrainian officials have not come out and said, we, the goal of the objective is take this town or this city or this particular piece, liberate this piece of territory. But but this is a case of we'll know it when we see it. The second is that the operation has to demonstrate success of proof of concept that Ukrainian units trained and equipped by the West right, 
can operate more effectively and can break the Russian lines at this phase of the war. Okay. And, and this is essentially to validate the surge effort to build out all these brigades and to demonstrate that, that they can be effective. Uh, I think probably the third part of it is, of course, um, uh, subjective, which is the operation has to demonstrate sufficient success for Western countries that are supporting Ukraine to feel confident and optimistic in further providing material assistance. And that's going to, you're going to say, well, how are they going to all judge this? And, and my honest answer is, I don't know. How would 30 plus different capitals judge whether or not the operation is successful? Probably they'll have different views on it. That's an honest answer. Um, and, and, and my view doesn't matter here, but I do think that the operation has to demonstrate not just some kind of success, meaning Rob and I will not be able to say, Hey, good news. The Russian line was moved back 10 kilometers and they went from their first line to their secondary line that, but the operation has to show Russian forces decisively beaten in some part of the front, whether it's like your they stuff, have to have a breakthrough and then exploit it. Right? There has to be a breakthrough on some part of the front, whether it's like Kharkiv or it's Kyrgyzstan. Or it's not like either of those, you know, operations because they obviously have a, an anchoring effect on how we think about the problem. But they have to show Russian force decisively beaten. I think that's what people are looking for. Where it happens, I don't think I don't think it matters all that much, right? And I don't, I'm not sure people are that vested necessarily in the Ukrainian military getting to a specific city. So they're going to say, well, if they get to Mitopol, it's a success. But if they don't get to Mitopol, then it's not necessarily a success. But I hope this part makes sense. I think. I think these are the criteria most people can agree on. Everything else is going to vary by 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 capital and by political leadership and how they assess this. Yeah. What about the idea that if you get sufficiently far down south, then you, you can bring your HIMARS and other weapon systems closer to put more of Crimea in range and have the ability to start hitting Sevastopol on a regular basis and other units in Crimea, and that can be a significant political victory to put massive pressure on the Kremlin. What do you so, think of that? So I say, sure, especially if you're expecting GLSDV to come online maybe later, kind of August, September, it'll give HIMARS a significantly longer range. So as Rob said... And, and expla explain those new munitions. Oh, so, so GLSDV is basically uh, a gliding bomb munition that's propelled by the Gimler's, the, the Gimler's motor, the HIMARS rocket. So it's basically, think of it as a much longer range munition than the typical Gimler's that the HIMARS fires. Now, as Rob said, Storm Shadow has been in play the last couple of weeks. Which, by the way, I think for many of us who have been following this war, is a very interesting um, uh, case to explore the question of if ATACMs were introduced, what would the potential effects be? Because this weapon system is not the same as ATACMs. But it's very much a stand-in in the same role with the same effects. Similar range, similar payload, right? Similar difficulty of intercept, probably even much higher to much higher difficulty of intercept, right? So you're achieving very much the same effects as if Ukrainian forces had ATACMs. It's not a one-for-one, one, but you get what I'm saying here. And so that they've used enough of them for folks to now be able to assess what would have been the difference in the impact of ATACMs being introduced on the battlefield. Um, and, and they've used them against critical logistical points, right? Warehouses and supply points. And, and they've done that also with drones to hit refineries in Russia to try to impact their fuels, right? Yes, but interestingly, not the same effects that you saw when HIMARS was first introduced late in June. You're not, you're not seeing the same impacts and the same kind of spectacular and decisive strikes. But, but do you think that's because of limited quantities? I mean, these are 
really, really expensive munitions, right? 750K pop, and it's not clear how many they've actually gotten. I don't think they have that many. I suspect it is because the Russian military of today has adapted significantly to the introduction of HIMARS, and that it's going to be much harder to find those kind of targets out in the open, to find munitions concentrated in that way, and to find unhearted command and control points. And so I think the challenge is just much higher now than it was back then in the summer. And so it's not just a question of range. A lot of folks were thinking of it, well, if you just give them a longer stick, then they'll be able to hit all these things that the Russian military has further behind the line. So this is not the case. But, 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 but Mike, let me just challenge you on that because at some point you're going to need concentrations of logistics, supply depots somewhere, right? So how far behind you know, your lines are you going to put it before you're going to be really in trouble with your frontline forces not being able to get resupplies? Um, at some point, yes. But how much you have to concentrate all of this is a is an interesting point of debate. So it makes the job for the Russian military to sustain their effort much more challenging, and it makes it harder for them to establish an advantage in fires because they have to feed those fires, right? So it creates these important downstream effects. But I, I would be cautious. This may be a good topic for another conversation. In, uh, in assuming that Russian military is not adapting its logistics and how it does... Um, how it actually distributes ammunition and fuel, which are the things that are the most taxing on logistical system uh, to its forces. And so it's not just a question of range. I think people had a somewhat, I, I find this to be a somewhat simplistic interpretation of the problem. That if you just get a longer stick, the problem is solved. And, and guess what? This this will be the proof of it, right, Mitri? If, if that's the case, if that is truly the case, I mean, how many concentrated depots could the Russian military have? Probably fewer than storm shadows that have been provided to Ukraine. Right? It's not just storm shadows, because I believe they're also probably... I, I, I suspect the storm shadow maybe scalp EGs that it could involve French weapons as well. So what I'm basically saying here is, I suspect Ukraine has gotten more missiles than there are concentrated Russian logistics depots to hit. Rob, what, what's your take on this? I mean, Russian logistics have never been good, and this war has demonstrated how terrible they are. How, how can they truly distribute this and still be effective? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's important to to uh, separate one thing. So in the beginning of the war, Russia had significant logistics problems that that significantly impacted their operations, um, and that was for a variety of reasons. Part of that was just you know systemic weakness of the Russian military. Part of it was you know these guys didn't have any warning, and they went into to this war with you know tanks that hadn't been maintained, weren't ready for a war, they didn't get enough fuel, all this kind of stuff. So like, there are a lot of reasons why logistics issues were bad in the beginning. I think um, since then. You know, ultimately, Russia supplies forces, you know, decently, right? I mean, we, we could talk about like, all sorts of issues, but if you look, look at the kind of the high level, you know, stuff, Russia has a lot of artillery ammunition. They have, they've had ammunition uh, advantage throughout this war. Um, their soldiers are supplied. Yes, they don't get the best gear and some other things, but, you know, they ultimately, they get the most important equipment and, and they've been able to support that. And they're even supporting, um, you know, on the right bank of Kherson during the fighting then, even after the bridges were, were hit several times, you know, they're still supplied with forces, so they're able to fight. So, I mean, I think sometimes we might exaggerate some logistics problems Russia's had. They've adapted. You know, it's still antiquated, right? There are still obviously a lot of weaknesses there. But, you know, as Mike was saying, they've adapted to, to the situation with Ukraine having um, longer-range precision fire escape capabilities since last June for you know, about a year. Um, you know, 
we spoiled out our bombs. I think it's about half, it's about, sorry, twice the range of a Gimlers. So that will be an important new capability. And, it, you know, I think there's a pretty, once they get, once the proof of concept is, is set, I think it'll be pretty easy to produce in, in kind of large numbers pretty pretty cheaply. That would be a, you know, a significant advantage for Ukraine. As I say about Storm Shadow, I don't know how many I have. Um, so it's kind of hard to make these predictions. I, I expect some of these strikes uh, with Storm Shadows already were kind of more maybe army or division command posts. It might have been a few different things. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, always get all the information because both sides try and kind of conceal what was, what was hit necessarily. Um, I, I think it's an important capability, but, you know, ultimately, it, it, Russia's had a variety of problems for, but they do adapt. And, um, you know, they adapt, you know, not necessarily fast enough and not in the prettiest ways, but they do adapt and, you know, able to kind of sustain their forces. So um, I think this is, you know, it's important new capability. Uh, obviously, the more of these kind of long-range capabilities they have uh, makes it more difficult for Russia to fight. But they still have, you know, these large kind of defensive positions. They can still move equipment around. They can still kind of work around it. So it's, I think it's more about it, it hinders, um, it'll hinder their, their ability to defend, but it won't, you know, make it impossible. And I think, you know, we, we, we can be careful about maybe over-exaggerating kind of what um, this might actually mean. So you, you guys have both written in recent months uh, in Foreign Affairs and in War on the Rocks on sort of longer-term implications of these offensives on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. And if you sort of step back, this war has been a chess match from the beginning, right? You had the first Russian assault, then the Ukrainian counter-assault in Kharkiv and Kherson, then the attempted uh, Russian offensive, uh, which took Bakhmut and not much else. Now the Ukrainians have their move again. You know, at some point, let's, let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that this offensive is hopefully successful on the Ukrainian side. But at some point, uh, it's going to stall, right? And presumably, they won't take back the, uh, all the territory that, that, the, that they've lost since the start of the war or even since 2014. So at that point, it will be Russia's move again. But you have had significant attrition of their forces. Uh, presumably, after this counteroffensive, you'll have the same happening on the Ukrainian side. So, Mike, talk a little bit about the manpower issues for both sides after this offensive, where we go from there. Sure. So uh, maintaining force quality and reconstitution has been one of the bigger challenges in this war. It's like, to me, the long pole in the tent. A lot of people focus on capabilities. They focus on other things. But the more time we've had an opportunity to spend with Ukrainian forces, the more we see the challenge of a mobilized military that's expanded, that's grown, generate additional brigades, and also have to replace losses from significant levels of attrition over the course of 15 months. And I think it's fair to say that in the Russian military, they still have a structural manpower problem because after mobilization in September, they basically maybe got another 300,000 personnel, but the force very rapidly absorbed them. They had big losses over the course of the year, and they deployed in a peacetime uh, force structure that was maybe 70% manning levels, right? So they were already missing people to begin with, and they took heavy losses. And so coming out of the winter... A lot of people were thinking, hey, maybe there's this other Russian military that's been mobilized, that's ready for an offensive operation. And folks like me and Rob were saying, there is no actual Russian army. What you're seeing is what you're going to get. There isn't some army beyond the Urals that's going to backstop this army. And if they want to create some additional force, they're actually going to have to run mobilization again. All the Russian units is what is in play, right? We were trying to put this out back in January, February, and people are struggling with it. They kept expecting a spring offensive with some other Russian force. That, that they imagined was going to be there. Well, the the Russian military under Gerasim, I think, had largely misspent these resources on a kind of very um, ill-timed and kind of ill-conceived offensive that started in late January. All right, having taken these losses, 
What is available now is a Russian military that still has several hundred thousand troops in Ukraine. It has some forces in terms of reserve and some capacity to conduct rotation. They're conducting a national campaign to try to recruit people. They've been running it for several months. It's very different from the campaign last year. I don't think they're going to be that successful. This is my assumption, right? I could be wrong on this. I think that they're ultimately going to conduct another wave of mobilization, and I suspect they're going to wait to see what comes of the Ukraine offensive, and then they're going to run the second wave possibly in the fall, depending on the outcome. I think they're desperate to avoid it, right? And they said they're not going to do it, but I highly doubt that they can manage their manpower problem via volunteer recruitment and paying out these salaries and benefits. I just don't think it's going to happen for them. Well, and if they weren't planning to do mobilization, then what's the point of all these laws that they've passed in the last couple of months to make it much easier to mobilize people, much harder for them to leave? Notifications now don't have to be in person. They can be done electronically through various interactions people have with the uh, Russian government sites. So it seems like they're preparing the system for one, right? Yeah, now uh, the app goes to Sugi that any Russian man has on his phone, he's going to open it with trepidation if he sees a notification or a note there. And if he clicks on it, he's going to wonder what that note says, because according to the new law, you no longer have to receive a formal notice, you know, by paper at your registered address of residence. They can just ping you, right? And uh, and that counts as sort of legally valid notification. So now you're you're in deep trouble. It's much harder to avoid it. Uh, back during the first wave mobilization, part of the reason why the municipal local authorities got people that didn't really match what the Bayankama was looking for is they delivered who they could get their hands up, right? So whoever wasn't smart enough to not be at their registered address and what have you, these are the people they delivered. And Bayankama said was saying these are these are not the people we're looking for. And the civilian authorities obviously said, well, you, you had a quota. You wanted numbers. Here are numbers. Here's the men we found. These are the people that weren't smart enough to not be. Uh, or 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 couldn't get away from where we could find them. So I yeah, do think that the Russian come out as the the enlisted points. Uh, and Rob, what what about the people that they grab in the annual drafts in the spring and the fall? Like why why don't why is not an option for them to send those eighteen year olds that have mandatory military service every year? Why can't they send them to the front? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously. They're not supposed to deploy conscripts um, outside of Russia. They're basically always supposed to use to kind of defend Russia itself. Um, you know, they haven't declared war, right? It's still special military operation. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the what the the block here is. I mean, Mike might have a better idea than I do. Um, maybe they consider it, it better for, you know, older men who serve the military to, to be, you know, put in some meat grinder than 18-year-olds. Um, I'm not sure. The other thing is, you know, with conscripts, maybe they want some of these guys to sign contracts, and to eventually serve, you know, later on. And so maybe deploying them right away is not the best option. Um, I'm, not, I'm not fully sure, but, you know, conscripts, I think, were taking part in defending the border. Um, I think some of them might have been killed in, in the uh, the raids by the, uh, the, the the Russian Defense Legion or those guys. Um, but uh, not, not sure, you know, exactly what Russia's doing there. Um, you know, but as, as Mike said about mobilization, you know, looking at the offensive right now, I, I don't think Russia's really going to be able to significant restore offensive uh, potential um i think at this point you know we saw what they did with mobilization what they what they could, what they could do they started offensive too soon um they didn't build up enough resources to really you know that give the the the, the uh, right opportunity to kind of achieve a breakthrough and so all we kind of saw these kind of slow grinding type offensive things um and then over the offensive you know the good units they had they ground down and so they're kind of weaker now um and so you know some significant questions there about 
What is the, the force quality? I think a lot of this basically is defensive for Ukraine. A lot of it comes down to Russian forces, right? I mean, what is what is the force quality? Do mobilized units fight? How well do they fight? What kind of adjacent unit coordination is there? What kind of air ground coordination? All those kind of things. I, I think those are, that's kind of the biggest factor on whether or not Ukraine has success or not. It really comes down to you know the, the weaknesses of Russian forces um, and you know whether or not they stay in a fight or whether or not you know you have some of these units kind of run. Um, so that's, I guess my view of, of of kind of what's happening right now. Mike, really briefly, do you have a view on why conscripts have not been sent in large numbers? Why, why do they need to mobilize new people when they've already mobilized on an annual basis uh, multiple times, 18-year-olds that could be sent into the fight? A couple of reasons. First, uh, would be very politically consequential, would be deeply unpopular with uh, a lot of Russian families. Uh, but more unpopular than mobilization? Uh, I, actually, yes, because these are 18-year-old kids versus mobilization. These are 40-year-old men or you're getting them from wherever. It's actually, it's very different culturally. Uh, second, they wouldn't be that useful anyway. They don't have that much in the way of training, right? And what kind of roles and tasks you're actually going to assign these kids is debatable, right? Third, you, you need them for support roles. For a military that's conscript-based, they're important kind of cheap labor. So they're already involved in the war effort because they're probably running all the logistics, all the support on the Russian side. If you've ever been to a conscript military, give you an example, I spent a lot of time in Finland. These kids provide a lot of important labor and and various support activities for that uh, for that armed force. So they're probably employed... D- digging in, trenches? All sorts of things. And keep in mind, they're also meant to be kind of the feeder pool into then contract servicemen. You're looking to pick them up after their conscript service. So you are going to be using them just later. For example... You know, uh, it's, you know, Russia's very kind of Kafka-esque country in terms of systems. As soon as you can complete your conscript service, guess what? Uh, right after that, you can receive, if you want, a mobilization notice congratulating you and telling you that you are now a contract serviceman in the Russian military and you have been mobilized the day after you're done with your conscript service. This is perfectly possible. You've already done a year of it, and now you can go back now for under an indefinite terms of service. So, so reason, the reason I'm telling you is, is, is actually they can be involved after the fact. Um, they can be certainly uh, mobilized into the military. But in general, I think there are clear reasons why they don't want to use conscripts. They're political and they're also practical. And yeah. it's always been one of the biggest challenges for the Russian military, why people asked early on in the war, why does it look so hollow? And the answer was very straightforward. 30% of the people aren't there. It's a partial mobilization army that didn't mobilize, right? 30% of the people are conscripts and can't be used. So you're generating from a peacetime force structure a tiny percentage of what you have available to invade the second largest country in Europe. And if that plan goes wrong, uh, you do not have the capacity to adjust in any way, shape, or form, right? You have no other forces. You cannot rotate troops. You have no additional forces to deploy. You're, that's pretty much it. And that's exactly what happened to the Russian military three weeks into the war. Last question. We can't leave the conversation without talking about the dam, without speculating who did it. My sense is that neither side really benefits from this. It's, it's kind of a disaster for both. You know, Crimea, water supplies are affected. You've got flooding on both sides of the river. Both sides are trying to evacuate. So, you know, uh, my, my personal thought here is that it might have been accidental or someone may, may have done it without approvals. But is it your sense that this is not really benefiting Ukraine or Russia from a strategic military perspective. Mike, let's start with you. Okay. Um, so my basic sense of it is that this is an ecological and humanitarian disaster. For example, long-ass economic implications. 
I think that it's going to be very damaging both to uh, to Ukraine, to, to the Russia-occupied territory as well. I think that it, it, it's still unclear, and, and I'm not, like, I'm not a structural engineer. I don't know that much about dams. I'm not going to pretend to, right? As always, I've, I've already discovered lots of people on Twitter who are experts on dam construction. Um, my sense of it is that Russia is responsible. Either this was a deliberate act, okay, and they destroyed the dam, or they're responsible because uh, through negligence, the dam was under their control and their actions led to the disaster. They damaged the dam when they retreated from Kherson in November, right? The dam has been under their management and effective control. So whatever happened, and I don't know if it's possible to get this as the result of an accident. I'll just be very honest. There's people who say, yes, this could have been an accident. There's people who say, no, this couldn't have possibly been an accident. Well, there could be two things here, right? The dam had been damaged since last fall. Mm-hmm. Structural issues could have made made the breakthrough of the water possible. But also you have floating mines that have exploded. I posted one video of Twitter of a mine that uh, hit one of the banks. So that could have played a role as well where someone didn't do this intentionally, but it, it just happened because of neglect. But Rob, do you agree that from a strategic military perspective, neither side gains much much from this? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I, look, I, I, I'm, I'm wary of of, uh, of giving statements about this because I, I just don't know. Um, I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure, you know, which side gains more. I see a lot of downsides, you know, for both sides. I think, you know, maybe maybe short term this helps Russia because maybe they can move units um, that were there and they don't have to worry as much about, you know, some kind of Ukraine operation. I, I, but I'm not sure how much, you know, how, how, how many forces they actually committed over there. And, you know, Mike was saying long term, this might make, make it much more difficult for Russia to occupy that area, um, you know, a year from now later than this, if it, if it you know, has devastated the economy and with all these other kind of knock on effects. Um, so, you know, I, I just I don't know. And I think it's early to kind of say, um, but, you know, it's also not clear how this affects the overall counteroffensive. So, yeah, I think the, the, the main effort is going to be somewhere to the east anyway. Not sure this was is, is going to be that um, significant uh, affecting the offensive in one way or the other. Um, so yeah, I mean, it I, seems I, I to be that no one really was expecting for Ukrainians to do a major amphibious operation across the river and land on the left bank of the river and achieve some successes, right? So the fact that they can no longer, definitely no longer, can do that for the foreseeable future doesn't seem like it, it really matters that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that we likely see Ukrainian soft do some some uh, riverine operations across the river, do diversionary raids, things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that the main effort was always going to come somewhere else. Uh, it was always going to be difficult to, to to go across the river and, and and bring enough combat power to quickly kind of you know move somewhere. Um, so uh, yeah, again, I'm I'm just not really that sure how this affects everything, except for the fact that it's, you know it's obviously it's an awful humanitarian disaster and it's going to have a long term effect on on Ukrainians who've already suffered tremendously. So, um, but not not sure what the military impacts are as of now. Yeah. I mean, I'm skeptical that Russia decided at a high level, at least, to to do this because the impact to Crimea, which they definitely care a lot about, is going to be significant because that canal that supplies water to Crimea that Ukrainians blockaded after 2014. And the first thing the Russians did literally two days after the invasion is break that dam and enable the water to flow through to Crimea. Now that canal is going to be potentially no longer be able to supply water because the water levels are dropping to Crimea, and that's going to have devastating impa- impact on Crimean agriculture and uh, their ability to provide water to their people. That it, it's not going to be, you know, 
catastrophic because there are other water reservoirs in Crimea, but it's going to have a huge effect. And I, I highly doubt that uh, anyone at a senior life level would have jeopardized that for a tactical advantage of being able to may, move a, you know, a brigade or, or two to another region. But who knows? Maybe, maybe someone lower level decided to do this on their own volition. But guys, fascinating conversation. A lot more to come on this, obviously, over the next couple of months. But as hopefully has become clear, this offensive is unlikely to be the end of it. And it will be important to look at the longer-term trends of force reconstitution on the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side, to see what happens after this offensive and the ability of both sides to continue to prosecute this war. So thanks so much and talk soon. Thanks. Thanks.